We'll probably get up in a second, but uh, I think you're okay with that. Um, before we start, just uh, want to just jump in on this and uh, say thank you to Pastor Jim and Ms. Kathy. And uh, always reminded of the time that you stood up on my behalf at a time that was really dark for me. And so God uses his people. So I'm thankful that you are faithful, you are obedient, and you love God's people. So I just want to praise God for that and praise God for you. Miss Kathy, I love you. You, are, you keep me going at that office because honestly that office wouldn't move at all if you didn't do stuff. <clears throat> so with that said, thank you, thank you, and thank you. All right. We are going to be in the book of Job. I know that probably surprises all of you. We're going to be in the book of Job, chapter 9. Uh, we're going to actually start in verse 16. But before we get there, I want you guys to just picture what's going on. This man has lost everything. All his wealth, all his children, and his health. And um, his wife tells him to curse God and die. Such words of encouragement, I know. And he corrects her so lovingly and says, you're speaking like a foolish woman. Shall we receive good from God and not calamity as well or evil as well? And in all this, Job didn't sin with his mouth, with his lips. But that doesn't mean he doesn't sin in this book. So we are going to be in Job chapter, 16, chapter 9, verse 16. So if you're able to stand, uh, please stand with me. We're going to read only a few verses, but we're doing the rest of the chapter. Okay? So chapter 9, verse 16. If I, if I had called and he had answered me, yet would I not believe that he hearkened unto my voice. For he breaketh me with a tempest and multiplieth my wounds without cause. He will not suffer me to take my breath, but filleth me with bitterness. And if I speak of strength, lo, he is strong. And if of judgment, who shall set a time to plead? If I justify myself, mine own mouth shall condemn me. And if I say I am perfect, it shall prove me perverse. Though I were perfect, yet would I not know my soul. And I would despise my life. Father, the, though this passage doesn't seem very encouraging, Lord God, it points us to the need of resting you, to, the, to relying on you, Father. It points us to the fact that on our own, we can do nothing. We can't even breathe without you. So I ask today, <clears throat> you minister to our hearts and minister to our, 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 our lives. Pour, pour in hope, Lord God, even in dark times. And Father, there are dark times. So I pray that you would protect us and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, Job was written to show that Job was believing lies about God. He was even maligning God in the midst of his suffering. And that, you know, he, he was really looking at his friends as his judges. But really, only God is judge. And then today you will see that you're not to call, you're not called to buy into the lies and believe lies about God. You are to avoid, not only avoid, but forsake and reject this whole idea of maligning God in the midst of your struggles. For God is the only judge. So our first truth today is don't buy into the lies. I know that's simple, but simple doesn't mean easy. Because we are flawed and failed people. 
We are foibled people. We mess up. We sin against the holy and righteous God. So if you're his, let me help you here. Let me give you words of encouragement. If you're his, he is not after your destruction. That is not what God is after. He is he's after your sanctification. He's after you growing and changing in the midst of the battle, in the midst of the struggle, when things don't go right. He is faithful. But Job in his brokenness says in uh, verse 16, If I had called and he had answered me, yet I would not believe that he had hearkened unto my voice. Even if I call out to God, even if he were to give heed to my voice, I wouldn't even believe it. I, I wouldn't believe that it was God talking to me. Why would Job say this? Listen, his friends have said he is being judged of God. And Job is even believing he is being judged of God, though wrongly judged by God, being treated unfairly by God. And, and so as you watch this, he's un, it's unfolding. And he basically didn't believe that God would respond or even hear his pleas, even if God were to address his concerns. As we will see, Job believed this to be the case. Look at verse 17. Job 9, 17 says, For he breaketh me with a tempest, and he multiplies my wounds without cause. He felt God was breaking him, was taking him down with this tempest, with this storm, with this battle, with this vengeance, and insult to insult, injury to injury. And all these wounds would have wounds upon wounds upon wounds upon wounds. He is hurting, and he is broken. The storms sent by God, these storms of loss, Storms of losing his wealth, the storm of losing his health, they came from the hand of God. Because Satan can do nothing, nothing without God's permission and even without God's empowering. So Satan has, he has no power that God doesn't allow him to have. Because God is the sovereign God. Job thought that, thought that God was not being right and all these struggles, uh, you know, just upon, just, just, just this happened because they do. Just because God is being unfair. No purpose, no justification, no care for him at all. You see where he's believing lies. And so the only thing that Job does right here that is actually right is he points to the fact that God is sovereign. And he is in control of all things, the trials, the struggles, and even these pains. God is in control. But God is not about Job's comfort. Listen, he is about his own glory. Uh, oh gosh, what is that, um, that catechism question? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is the chief end, not your comfort, his glory. And so as you unfold this, it's pretty amazing. So he, he is looking. God does not inflict the sons of men for no reason. He always has a plan and he always has a purpose. And so God is and always will be about his glory, his honor, and his praise and not our comfort, not our creature comforts. Guys, we 
we, we, we are at his will, not him after our will. And so Romans 8.28, I know my bride loves this verse, as do I. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are what? Called according to his purpose. We do not belong to ourselves. We belong to the King of Kings, to the Lord of Lords, to the creator of all things. He is sovereign. And everything, COVID, under his tender care. Death under his tender care all of it it's all under his tender care so he is god is not indebted to to show us any good at all because you know there's an actual bible verse that says all have sinned and come short of the glory of god all means all and then it says in romans 6 the wages of sin is is death Wow, if it stopped there, we'd be a rather hopeless people. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And so, this story of Job is not at all about Job. Us mere mortals will never fully grasp and understand. It's about God who made Job, saved Job, and holds Job. I noticed the song we're going to be singing today at the end is, He will hold me fast. So the battle is real. This struggle to blame God in our circumstances is real. It is a real and present danger in the lives of his saints. If I were to ask for a show of hands, and I'm not going to, but if I were, most of you would say you battle with God at times. Now, we're not going to make this that real, okay? So God called attention to Job in chapter 1, and he does it again in chapter 2. And he asked Satan to consider his perfect, upright servant who feared God and rejected evil. And asked Satan uh, if he had considered this servant who was suffering greatly and did not deny God. He did not curse God in his heart. But instead, he worshipped. After losing everything, he worshipped. And God gave this, uh, Satan this ability to take away Job's health. This suffering had a purpose, though Job had no clue what it is. But we can actually see it as we read it. And we're going, I don't like it. And by the way, his friends saw it, and they didn't like it either, but they thought Job was in sin. God was proving that he holds his saints even through suffering. Look at Job 9, 18. He will not suffer me to take a breath, but filleth me with bitterness. Wow. God will not even let him take a breath, because breath was a chore for him. He is hurting. He is broken. He is done. And so all this bitterness, all this anger, all this brokenness, all this angst against God, blaming God for filling him with bitterness. But honestly, as I thought this through, the bitterness didn't start getting more bitter until his friends started opening their mouths. But their friend, his friends didn't start opening their mouths until Job started talking about his bitterness. So you got it caught in a catch-22. Okay? So in Job's eyes, the struggle is all God's fault. God will not allow him to just die and leave this miserable existence. Have you ever felt you were failing and actually been okay with it? 
almost submitting to your fail, I might as well just curl up in a ball and die. And so I believe that's kind of where Job is at. Job felt this, these feelings, and they were real feelings, guys. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to minimize how he felt. But how he feels doesn't dictate truth. Because God is still faithful. Jeremiah. Jeremiah had these feelings as well. Very similar to, uh, to, to Job. So I want to read this passage to you. Jeremiah 15, 18. If you get a chance to look it up, guys, it is powerful and deep. This is what Jeremiah says. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuseth to be healed? Will thou be altogether unto me as a liar and waters that fail? I think this, this verse right here probably knocks us all back a little bit. Did he really just say this? But before we get there, he wants to know why his pain is perpetual, continual, and it never seems to end. He wants to know why the wound, his hurt, is, see, it's incurable, seeming to have no cure. But then the next part says, he wants to know why the, this hurt actually is refusing to be healed. Refusing to have the solve that brings comfort. But then he asks these two questions. Will you, O God, be altogether like a liar unto me? Or will you be like waters that fail to water? He's basically saying, God, are you going to be a liar? Because let me just tell you, God, this is not comforting my heart. I'm hurting, I'm broken, and it feels like you've left me aside. Now, of course, none of us ever feel that way, or we would never verbalize it. Okay? Job is broken, Jeremiah is broken, but don't we get so discouraged, so complacent, that we even turn and forget that God cares, or that he sometimes just, we kind of almost revel in our brokenness. And so we, we begin to blame God. We begin to see God as the unfair one. Why don't you listen to the psalmist in Psalm 10.1. I, think, I believe the psalmist felt it. Listen to what he says. By the way, if you read the psalms, they, they start off kind of hopeless and move to hopefulness. But I want you to listen to his words. Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thy faith, thyself in, in times of trouble? Why are you hiding, God? Why are you standing so far away? By the way, he is never too far away. His hand is not too short that he cannot save, nor his ear too heavy that he cannot hear. It comes from Isaiah 59. But he sure feels it like this at times, doesn't he? Or is that just me? Sometimes he feels just out of reach. Just, just out of reach that I, I, I feel like I'm alone. Now, I don't mind admitting that because I, I love God's word and I love God. And the only thing that kind of always draws me back to him is his word. So don't move away from his word. So we need to turn our eyes on Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I, I protected you from my singing today. So maybe we do look for Christ for our salvation. Maybe we do look for him for our hope. Yet somehow we think he does not care 
Or maybe he has bigger things to do, I don't know, like keeping the earth rotating and revolving around the sun. Listen, he who holds the big things can definitely handle the little things. He who holds the stars in the sky and gives them each a name knows how to heal and comfort the hearts of his people. Because this is what he does. And so he goes on a little further. Job is tired, he's done, he's defeated. And so he continues in his brokenness. Look at verse 19. If I speak of strength, lo, he is strong. And if of judgment, who shall set a time to plead? And if I justify myself, my own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall prove me perverse. He was so helpless that he claimed to be strong, but he knows that God is stronger. If he were to speak of judgment of what is right, God is more righter. And so God is more right. So he would, who would give him this created being a chance to plead before God as to his unfairness? <sighs> then he goes on, he says, he even understood that if he were to try to justify it himself, he would be condemned by his own mouth. His own words would judge him. If he were to say he was perfect, his own perversion would become more proven. And so Job recognizes something here, something powerful. I believe Paul recognized it as well in Romans chapter 9, verse 19 and 20. It says, Thou wilt say unto... Uh, 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 I'll try again. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? Who has resisted his will? Nay, but O man, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me this way? So Job is asking questions, though he may ask, he's trying to, he's expecting an answer that he, that God is not required to give. He's not required to answer. Shall that which is made question God as to what he does? Why did you make me this way? Why did COVID happen? Why did I lose my, my, my loved one? I don't know. It's outside my pay grade and it's outside of yours. It's best to just rely on the grace of God and the mercy of God. Why did you allow the storm? Yes. I don't know. But he did. And he who allowed the storm holds you in the midst of the storm. Look at the your hymnal, not hymnal, what is the, the bulletin thingy? And it says, he will hold me fast. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter, now listen, when the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I can never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He will hold me fast. Guys, we are not reliant on ourselves. We are reliant on the God who made us and the God who saves us and the God who holds us. And if you do not know Christ, you have no hope at all. But you can look to Christ and find hope and rest in Christ who is our righteousness. So I want to move on to the next truth. You know, we, we do believe lies about God. But when we believe lies about God, we begin to malign God. So don't malign God in your brokenness. Let's see. I want to read you something, and this is from uh, Burroughs, a Puritan pastor. I'm going to read something. It's, it's lengthy, so pay attention. The last thing that quietness of spirit is, the opposite of it, it's desperate risings of the heart against God by way of rebellion. 
that is most abominable. I hope many of you have learned so far to be content as to restrain your hearts from such disorder. Yet, the truth is that not only wicked men, but sometimes the very saints of God find the beginnings of this. When affliction remains for a long time and is very severe and the affliction just it keeps on going, it's heavy and indeed is upon them and strikes them as it were the master vein. They find in their hearts something of a rising against God. Their thoughts begin to bubble and their affections begin to move in rebellion against God. Especially is this the case with those who, besides their corruptions, have a large measure of melancholy. The devil works both upon the corruptions of, the, of their hearts and the melancholy disease of their bodies. And though much grace may lie underneath, yet under affliction there may be risings and uprisings against God himself. Now Christian quietness is opposed to all these things. When affliction comes, whatever it is, do not murmur, though you feel it, though you make your cry to God, though you do not, uh, you, you desire to be delivered and seek it by all good means, yet do not murmur or repine. You do not, uh, and do not uh, be distracting your fears in your hearts. No sinking discouragements, no unworthy shifts, no risings of rebellion against God in any way. This is quietness of spirit under an affliction. And that is the second thing, when the soul is so far able to bear an affliction as to keep quiet under it. Guys, all he's saying is even Christians can turn to this, to this maligning of God. God, you're just being unfair. Now, should that remain is probably the better question, because I think we all fall under that trap, don't we? Or maybe it's just me. Okay, I'll repent. Okay, Job 9:21. Though I were perfect, yet I would, uh, yet would I not know my soul. I would despise my life. Even if he were perfect, he said he wouldn't even know the state of his own soul. He said that even if he were perfect, he would still despise and hate his life. Guys, can you hear the desperation? He was so self-focused he could not see any worth in suffering and in these struggles. Now, I know it's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel. I know it's hard to see the, the good at the end of the, the, the battle. But God works in the midst of the battle. I was thinking about the story of uh, Je Jehoshaphat, this king. Three invading armies are coming, and so they turn to praying. They all get in sackcloth and ashes. God sends an answer to, uh, through the man by the name of uh, Jezehiel. And he says, don't worry about God's going to fight this battle for you. And so they go to battle. And, and the next morning, they, they get up before they go to battle, and they, they get ready, and they sing hymns. As they're singing, one, the two armies attack the one army, and then the two armies attack one another. There was not one left to stand against them, because God is the one that fights the battles. I think that's easy to forget when we're broken. Job 9.22, this is, this, this is one thing, therefore, I said it. He destroys the perfect and the wicked. And he, and the scourge, he, and uh, the scourge slays suddenly, and he will laugh at the trial of the innocent. Okay, in his eyes, God seems so unfair, 
In his eyes, God sees the one, be the one that's just going to destroy the perfect and the wicked. He's going to put them all in the same bucket. And the scourge of the judgment of God will take out any grace, righteousness, you know, that the righteous have along with it. He is totally not seeing God as he really is here. Okay? So what a wrong view. He's looking at God that he would laugh at the trial of his enemy. Is that what God does? Well, I thought we'd take a field trip. Let's figure out if that's what God does. How's that? Psalm 2-3. Listen to what it says. Let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have him in derision. Or Psalm 37-12. The wicked plot against the just and gnash their teeth uh, upon them with his teeth. The Lord shall laugh at him. Hmm. The Lord shall laugh at him, for he sees his day coming. The Lord sees his judgment coming. The wicked who rebel and reject God will be made to be disconnected from God, and <coughs> from his influence, from his law. But God will not be okay with them. God is not, you know, God, God, he's not going to let those that are plotting against him, you know, or even against his people. He's not going to allow his people to be consumed by the wicked because God is just and the justifier then Psalm 9, 59 8 says but thou O Lord shalt laugh at them thou shalt have all the heathen in derision he who sits in heaven uh, will laugh at those who think that they're they're going to actually usurp God and go against him and reject him but listen here's what these verses do not say are you ready it does not say he laughs at his saints. It does not say he laughs at his people. It does not say he, he, he's ready to destroy them with the wicked. It doesn't say that. What it does say is Psalm 147.3. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. Ah, that doesn't sound like he's laughing at them. Or Psalm 55.22. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, for he shall sustain you. He will keep you. He will hold you fast. Or one, uh, 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Do you hear laughing going on here? Okay. He heals. He binds. He carries wounds. He carries cares. He carries concern because he cares for you. So don't be discouraged. Don't misrepresent God and believe the lies about him. Uh, I love Psalm 3, 5. Uh, when I first came out of the hospital, this has been, this, this was really helpful. When I was struggling with just uh, wanting to breathe. And I'm in my bed and, and, and just struggling. Well, I have to go back to the hospital. And I was crying. And, uh, you know, men don't cry, I know. But this one did. And I remember saying to my wife, honey, I don't want to go back. And so we did what I know how to do, is we read a psalm, we prayed, and I went to sleep. But this is what I read. Psalm 3.5. I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. I laid down, and I went to sleep. And the only reason why I got up is because God sustained me. And that was able to let me go to sleep. I think I was out within about 30 seconds. 
and sleeping. Now, not that I stayed asleep. That's a different story. Um, but I want you to think about it. He speaks to his broken people and encourages them who are his, who are faithful. Listen to what this says. I, I, I remember Pastor Doug sharing this with me, and it blew my mind. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord thy God is in the midst of thee, is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest thee in rest in his love. He will joy over over thee with singing. Now, God is in the midst of his people. By the way, in the New Testament, his Holy Spirit comes and dwells in his people. And yes, he is absolutely mighty to save. He doesn't try to save. He doesn't attempt to save. He actually does save. He's not wringing his hands saying, oh my goodness, I hope Tom repents. God does what he does. And he, he, and he awakens the hearts of sinners to, so that sinners would be awakened to the gospel. So sinners would be converted to Christ, would repent and believe the gospel. Praise God he did that for me. Here's my question. Did he do that for you? Here's where you should probably say yeah or something like that. And if you didn't, you might want to examine. I'm just kidding. All right. So, not only does he save and dwell within, but he rejoices over you. Have you ever thought about that? In the midst of discouragement, that God rejoices over you? Isn't that amazing? That the God of heaven takes joy over you. And then he will give you rest. But then, that last part always gets me. That God sings over his people. He sings over his people. I don't know what that means, but it sounds really cool. And so, this God doesn't sound as it doesn't sound as Job is making him out to be. He is not rightly thinking about God. Job began to malign and misrepresent God. Now, listen, guys. I understand he's broken. I'm not knocking the brokenness, but in brokenness, we better look back to who God is. Job 9.24 says the earth is given into the hand of the wicked and he covers the faces of the judges thereof. If not, where and who is he? So God, God, Job is attributing to God only unfairness. And worse than that, he's saying that God has already given this land, this earth, into the hand of the wicked and has not left it under his authority. What horse pucky? God is sovereign. He doesn't give up control. He doesn't play. And so he's saying that God covered the eyes of those judges so they wouldn't see. But God will never allow evil to go unchecked or unhinged. God is sovereignly in control. So then Job asks another question. Okay, If God didn't cover the eyes of the judges, then who did? Well, let me just tell you. If he could turn the hearts of king however he can, like a river, I think he can handle the judges too. He is the sovereign God. Job is trying to understand God and his reasons. Job 9.25, now my days are swifter than a post. They flee away. They see no good. They are passed away as, the, as with sh uh, swift ships, as the eagles hasten to his prey. Now, because of his current state, he is so done. His days are slipping away. Moment by moment, they just flee and waste away. 
His days do not see any good at all, and they were spent like the passing of a, sh of a ship that is quick, or an eagle that comes down and catches his prey with a fell swoop. So, what do we do with all this? When we believe lies or be even turn to maligning God, let me just, I want to leave you with one more truth, if you don't mind. God is your judge and not man. God is your judge and not man. Now, I use the word judge, not that he's going to crush you under his arm, but he is the only one that will vindicate you through Christ. So he shifts from aligning God to giving up, defending himself with his friends who have heaped up on him judgment upon judgment upon judgment, for they did not understand what God was doing as well. They had no clue. Remember, they're more concerned that if this can happen to Job, it can happen to me. So they began to attribute to Job's sin that Job really wasn't in. 9.27 says this, If I say I will forget my complaint, I will leave off my heaviness and comfort myself, I am afraid of all my sorrows. Listen to what it says next. I know that thou wilt not hold me innocent. So he goes... Even if I chose to forget the struggles, even if I would cho choose to start rejoicing in the struggles, even if I stop being bitter and broken, even if I would, I, I would just move on through all this, all this heaviness and comfort would be lifted up. Even if I were to do that, he says to his friends, you will not allow me. You will not allow me to remain innocent because you're going to constantly think that I am the one in sin. And that's why this is all happening. He knew he would be fearful, for he knew that he would still be found guilty by those who would never see him as innocent. Now, some of you would say, with friends like that, who needs enemies? Guys, these were friends. Please do not miss that. These were friends. These were faithful friends. They came, made an appointment to come together to encourage their friend Job. And when they saw him, they wept. And then they took off their, their garments. They put ash on them and they sat with him quiet for seven days. And I've said this to you before. I can't even stay quiet for seven seconds. But, and then he goes on in verse 29. If I be wicked, then why do I labor in vain? It's a rhetorical question. He's not exactly expecting an answer, but he would like one. So if he's wicked, why does he have to labor to prove that he's not? If he's utterly wicked, why is there, at no point in their conversation, is there any evidence of, to his guilt? And why is it that there's no evidence of his wickedness? Wouldn't there be found some if he was? Because listen, sin always finds us out, doesn't it? So 9.30, if I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, and yet thou, thou plunge me in the ditch and my own clothes shall abhor me. Even if I were to get so clean, so clean, the cleanest I've ever been, you would still judge me. You would still throw me in the pit of despair because you think I've sinned against God. Okay? Even my own clothes will hate my guts. I've never seen clothes hate me. Now, I've seen clothes that made me look fat, but I've never seen clothes hate me. Okay? Job 9.32. Listen to what he says next. This is interesting. He's talking to his friends, and this is what he says. For he is not a man, as I am. 
By the way, what valuable truth he, he, read, he just said. He is not a man like I am, that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. He spoke this truth, and it is truth, but he's not speaking it as, as a good thing. He's just kind of still wallowing. But yet, in his wallowing, he recognizes something true. But he spoke this truth. God is not like him. He's not a man like him. He, that he could question God, that he could demand answers, that somehow God owed him an explanation, or even come together to discuss these trials. 9.33. And we, by the way, we are landing this plane in just a couple minutes. Neither is there any day man betwixt us that may lay his hand upon us both. So there's no one that can come into the gap. No one that could be an arbitrator. No one that could be a mediator. No one that could be a go-between between him and God. No one that could put their hand on each of them and decide which one's right. Because God is right. And he's always right. And there's no man that can come in between that. Okay? And, and so, God, you know, God is the divine just one. So what he does, he does. So look at 34 and 35. Let him take his rod away from me and let not his fear ter terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him. But it is not so with me. There's one final plea. Let God remove his rod from me. That whatever correction I'm getting here, let him take it away. Whatever correction I have, let, let him take it away and I will fear him. The fear of God would overtake him. The dread of God, you know, doesn't need to destroy him. And I won't fear him. And I'll be able to talk to him. If God were to do this, Job assures that he would speak to God and not fear him. But because he believes God is being unjust, he says, it is not so. And he's afraid of God in his unfairness. Though at the time when Job was written, there was no mediator between man and God. God is the one that interceded at that point. Though God was the one that was holding and sustaining Job, there was no one to mediate. All the sacrifices were temporary. But with Christ, there is now a mediator, an arbiter, uh, a, a days, uh, I, I think they call it a daysman. A go-between. Someone to connect us to the Father and to go in our behalf. First uh, Timothy 2.5 For there is, there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ, uh, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. Jesus is the mediator, the better mediator. So whereas Job, Job didn't know all that, we do. Don't we have more reason to trust? Or 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I write these uh, things unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Or Jesus Christ the righteous one. Jesus Christ the mighty right hand of God. Jesus Christ who saves to the uttermost. Jesus Christ who outstretched his arms and died. So John wrote, to these beloved believers who are being sold a bill of goods and lies to encourage them 
that the gospel that they have believed in is the same gospel and not to give in to a false gospel that is no gospel at all. So he wrote to them so they would not sin. But if any man did sin, they have an advocate, an arbiter, a lawyer, a go-between, someone who goes on, on their behalf to make intercession, who has already paid for sin in full. So he wrote to them so that they would not sin, but we have Christ who stands on our behalf. So again, plane is landing. Romans 8.34. Who is it that condemns? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even see at the right hand of God and maketh intercession for us. Who is it that condemns? It's Jesus. He has every right to, but instead of doing that, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for you and for me. He's interceding for his saints. He's interceding for his people. He's interceding for those whom he has redeemed because he is the one that holds them fast. He is the one. So if you are his, he is interceding for you right now. If you're not, you might want to get right. You might want to repent and believe the gospel. If you do not know Christ, there is no hope. But if you are in Christ and you fell short, let's say you gave in to your discouragement, repent. I love that word. Turn away and return. And he will restore. And he would set right. If you do not know Christ, you can turn from sin and trust him who died so that you could live. So, here's our three truths, and I'll spell them out for you one more time. Stop believing lies about God. Don't malign Him. And just trust the one who holds you fast. Let's pray. Father, you are good, and your mercy actually really does endure forever. And your grace is utterly sufficient in weakness. You are amazingly strong. So I pray that right now, you would have your way in us, Father, for the glory of your name, for the sake of your Son, be exalted. Lord, I ask that you would just move us in the impulse of your love for the glory of your name. Father, I pray today for those of my brothers that are struggling and suffering through just hurt upon hurt and pain upon pain and struggle upon struggle, that Jesus is enough to hold them fast. Father, for those who do not know you, that you would just awaken their hearts and let them see that Jesus is enough for every struggle and every shame. And Lord God, that he can restore and heal and save. Father, have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand as we sing the next song. Close our time out with He Will Hold Me Fast.